So I'm writing a novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel. From first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also interview special guests, and when people send them in, I'll answer listener questions. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. I'd like to say a quick thank you to our Patreon supporters who make this show possible. Patrons receive perks like me not bugging them about the Kickstarter as much as I've been bugging everybody else about the Kickstarter for New Age Sword and Sorcery magazine. Have you checked out the Kickstarter? Anyway, (laughs) if you're not a patron already, you can check out all the other perks and exclusive content over at patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. So yes, obviously I have the Kickstarter on the brain as I record this. It is Sunday, February 5th. And we are at 57% of our minimum funding goal. We got a whopping 50% in under 24 hours, which felt great. And then, you know, these things tend to slow down a little bit afterwards, which is quite the come down. But I'm feeling cautiously optimistic. I hope this recording isn't like tragic in retrospect later. Anyway, given that I have magazines and publishing them really on the brain this month, I thought it would make sense for our interviews to be centered around that. And thus, I have on two-thirds of the editorial staff of Old Moon Quarterly Magazine, a wonderful, equally new publication. They debuted their first issue back in the summer, and they are currently working through their submissions for issue number three. Old Moon Quarterly is also a sword and sorcery magazine with its mind on how to make itself a profitable, long-term, sustainable venture. So, Hopefully I can be forgiven a little bit for bringing up my own thing in the interview more than I might have otherwise. It probably also didn't help that we recorded this a couple weeks ago when I was at the height of just my mania of preparing for the Kickstarter. (laughs) So yeah, you'll hear that in my voice too. Anyway, let's hear what they have to say. Here we are with Graham and Caitlin. Hey, guys. Hello. Thanks for joining me on Saturday morning. And it was lovely to see your two beautiful dogs. Uh, what are their names, by the way? Uh, Maurice and uh, Ella. Um, we adopted them from one of our local shelters. And it's been, I think, just a blast. to. to this is my first time um, actually having dogs. So I, I grew up with cats. So it's been a really fun and adventurous time for me getting to used to like the differences between the two. Oh, awesome yeah I, i'm actually a person who's only ever had cats uh, as well and we're gonna get our first dog uh, this year so i'm looking forward to doing the, a similar experience for those who couldn't see them do you mind uh, saying what their breeds are sure so actually the the shelter that we got them from always labels the dog as just a mixed breed um we suspect that maurice is some is what a pit bull a, uh a, mastiff a French, yeah mastiff mix and we suspect that ella is a pit bull and english bulldog mix based on um, their characteristics and how they look and things like that. But we don't actually know for sure. Right, right. My partner always likes to call uh, dogs that are kind of hard to judge a uh, mystery meat, which I'm a big fan of. Uh, but yeah, I thought I saw some bulldog in there. That looked, Yeah, they look lovely. All right. Uh, but this is not, uh, you know, dog podcast. This is uh, so I'm running a novel, blah, 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 literary stuff. So yeah, uh, you guys are two thirds of the team behind Old Moon Quarterly. Uh, I probably babbled a bit before the interview began, but I just want to make sure I get this right. What precisely, uh, Graham, maybe you go first and then you, Caitlin, what are your roles with the magazine? 
So I'm the assistant editor. So prior to this, this would be the third issue we're releasing. Prior to that issue, Julian did all the editing and the layout and so on on his own. I, I helped him a little bit with layout for issue two. But now I help him with the slush pile. So we went to eight cents a word for this issue and our, our issues after this. So we got a little bit more of a, a slush pile from that. So we figured he might need some help. So I'm helping uh, work through that. And I think Caitlin also helps with the first reading. Um, and Caitlin also helps with the art acquisition, I think. She does some of the art herself. She did the art for the first issue. Oh, I thought, okay, so that was your illustration on cover uh, the cover of issue number one? Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, I think it was just, uh, we hadn't necessarily, um, or rather Julian hadn't necessarily, like, um, had time to really look around. And so it asked me to to create something for the first cover. Oh, man, I did. I just thought you did like, okay, so this is a good thing I asked. I misunderstood, um, I think, asking on the tavern a, a few months ago. I thought you did like layout and social media. So I just thought you found the image or contracted an artist or whatever. But you drew that. That's so, It's awesome. It's so good. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, and I do also help out a little bit with the um, with the social media. The Instagram account in particular is is uh, kind of my sphere of the social media piece. Ah, uh, good stuff. It's it's really, really, really great to have someone to help with social media for this kind of thing. Uh, I really, uh, with my thing, I, I lucked into Kevin Beckett uh, volunteering to help with that, and I would have been just lost <laughs> without him because the bandwidth it takes to edit a magazine it's a lot. Uh, yeah. Um, so could you please tell me what is the origin story of Old Moon Quarterly? Like how long was the process from the very first thoughts of like, what if a magazine uh, through to the release of issue number one? Sure. So Caitlin, sorry, she's stepping out to just grab the dogs real quick. So <laughs> I think the, the origin story was that I started submitting to magazines, with my own, with my own fiction and I like to write sword and sorcery and there just weren't that many venues that kind of accept sword and sorcery. And the ones that did accept it were, they tend to be pretty indie outfits and they didn't pay very much. And so Julian also loves reading sword and sorcery and horror and all that sort of thing. And he would often be one of my first readers for my own stuff. And when I told them, you know, it's hard to, to, to land these stories somewhere. It's hard to find a home for them. And the homes that I, that you can find tend to not pay very much. He was like, well, that 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 kind of that you know that's disappointing i think that you know what if there was a home for it what if there was a place that that was able to you know pay a little bit more for sword and sorcery give give these authors a little bit more pay you know perhaps mm -hmm. not exactly what they deserve but closer to it you know we always i i, I think uh I, i've seen neil clark from clark's world say that you know the sfwa pro rate the eight he, he it's eight, eight cents a word it shouldn't be a pro he shouldn't call it a pro rate it's more like a baseline um, I think that's a, I think that's a great a great idea, even if it is, you know, a little bit unattainable for for a lot of a lot of uh, venues. But that was kind of mm -hmm. the origin story was that we we were I was submitting my stories. Um, I think Julian submitted a couple of stories to places as well, and Julian was like Julian just thought we he wanted to make a place for sword and sorcery authors to to have have a venue where they could get paid a little bit more. Okay, so when did you guys have that conversation, roughly? Because if I remember correctly, uh, OMQ number one came out, I want to say, in August of 2022? It came, yeah, it came, I think it released July 30th, uh, 2022. Oh, okay. Something like that. Yeah, but like, you know, right before August. So I think we started having those conversations probably in 2021, so probably towards the end of 2021, probably in the winter or the, maybe the late fall. Hmm, okay. And uh, at what point, Caitlin, did you get involved? Um, I think I was 
kind of around as you guys were having some of those initial discussions. Um, and so I, w- I would say like, I've been doing the Instagram stuff kind of from the, uh, from the jump, from the get go, um, mm-hmm. with some of the social media pieces. Um, and obviously I have, um, I created the cover for the first issue. And then I think my role has kind of expanded kind of similarly to the time that Graham's role expanded, um, kind of going into the third issue as it's kind of become more popular where there's more stories being submitted, um, you know, more interest in being able to maybe look to some other artists, give them some opportunities to shine um, and get to put some of their art on the cover. And I would also love to see us get to a point where we can include more art in the magazine itself as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's really fun when you're, uh, you get to see like a black and white illustration of somebody's take on the character of the tale you're reading. Yeah, no, I, I look forward to that as well. I, I would love to see illustrations for some of the stories I've read uh, already in issues one and two. Uh, they're all very dynamic and captivating. Uh, so, so you guys had these conversations last year, and then the issue came out end of July. Was there a, like, were there a lot of stages between those two points, or was it just kind of like, yeah, let's do this, and then you know, you put out this call for subs, and you were off to the races? I'd probably have to talk to Julian more about that, but I think that from what I understand, we had the idea. He started to put together, you know, here's the amount of funding that I can pay for the first, you know, issue or two. So he does pay, he does pay most out of pocket. Um, obviously, beforehand, now that we have. Now we have now that we're selling issues, all that goes right back into the magazine. Um, but I think he put out the call for subs. I think he put it out to Poetry and Rylan, like the the pro market website or the pro market slash semi pro market website, um, and then just started receiving subs. I think, and then I also I think I announced it on the Discord to the Whetstone Discord. But I think that was it. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Straightforward. So here's a question that we know can be answered for hours on end. Uh, <laughs> I'll challenge you to to, uh, to try and, and be concise as much as you can. Why sword and sorcery? And how do you like to define this fantasy subgenre for whom quibbling over the definition is pretty much as established an activity as reading or writing it? <laughs> sure. Uh, I think we did sword and sorcery because we like to have stories that have a little bit of action in them. Um, I think when Julian and I were looking at, uh, and Caitlin too, when we were looking at some of the uh, other pro venues out there, a lot of the, it felt like a lot of what is being written nowadays tends more towards kind of like literary fantasy, which is fine. And, and I, and I like, and we like to read it, but it's, we just think they might be nice to have more venues that cater to more tastes. So things that allow a little bit more, you know, blood and thunder and, and blood and guts getting in, into the story. I think that's, I think it's fun to have that. So I think that's why we settled on it. In terms of our definition of sword and sorcery, I mean, it's like pretty, it's pretty broad, right? I'd say so. Yeah. So it's not to the level of, is, does it have swords and does it have sorcery? Sword and sorcery. <laughs> I think it's, it's probably, it, it's. Like a gut feel, maybe more than a fully articulated. Because uh... <laughs> that's fair, man. Like, you know, sometimes people just follow their gut. I, I think, yeah, I think it's, it's, we know when we see it sort of deal. <laughs> I know that's how Julian, he, he's not very big on genre distinctions and genre markers like that. He's not very invested in, in those kind of labels. So I think other other than it has some action and it has some weirdness to it, um, mm. it's more it's mostly gut feel beyond that, I think. Well, I think that's totally legit. You know, I was trying to articulate this to some people who are whom I knew getting too in the weeds of like, have you read this Howard story was, was going to be a waste of time, right? So I had to think about it and I was like, well... Get some action, that's a sword. Get some weirdness, that's a sorcery. Okay. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. And then just follow your nose, right? 
So issue one featured four stories, and then issue two had four again, but added a couple of interviews and a review. Do you guys have plans to keep expanding and fiddling with the format as you go forward? Is it kind of just growing organically, or is there a plan? So we have something of a plan. Our hope is to keep increasing the amount of fiction that we're able to include. So depending on how much we're able to sell, how much we're able to fund through other means um, as they come up, we hope to expand from, I think we've had about 12,000 words of fiction in the first two issues. So we hope to have a little bit more than that in the third issue, and then keep increasing that from their uh, budget permitting. In terms of the nonfiction stuff, we hope to have at least um, one interview and one review per issue. We're also hoping to some to perhaps expand it to have some more nonfiction articles, perhaps in later issues. Maybe not for this one. Um, mm. For the last one, I did all the interviews and I did the and I did the review. Um, but I think as I get more involved with the editorial stuff with Julian and so does Caitlin, we might have less time for doing the interviews and reviews. We might need to have some other people do those as well. But uh, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it, obviously. Okay, and yeah, and as Caitlin was saying, you're hoping to eventually have interior illustrations as well, right? Yes. Cool. And uh, sorry, I keep coming back to it. I think it's because I have it physically in front of me, but God, I love that cover, Caitlin. I just want to let you know while I've got you, I showed that just that cover image to several people when I first found out about the magazine, and every time they're like, oh my God, look at those dancing skeletons. Like, it just, uh, it worked. <laughs> I got a lot of people to try it out. And actually, that reminds me of something else that really worked was the title, Old Moon. Uh, where did that come from? That came from, so Julian is a musician. And he makes kind of like synthwave sort of music. Oh, cool. Yes. And on, his band is called J-Virus. And it's, it's on Bandcamp. And on his latest album, which is called Mercury in Retrograde, he had a song called Old Moon. And it's pretty fun. It's more, it's almost more like, um, again, he doesn't like genres very much. So it's more like, a, it's almost like an industrial metal song than a synthwave song, which kind of, it, it's in the ending song. So it's a very fun kind of transition for the rest of the album. I like his music. And so I listened to that song and I was like, damn, that is a badass like title for a song and, a band, and the lyrics are cool too. And so I said, you know, that would be, cause we'd been talking about the magazine a little bit about the idea of a magazine. I was like, man, that'd be an awesome title for a magazine. And he agreed. And that's what we went with. There you go. Yeah. And then uh, Caitlin made the right move of making the O and old the moon itself in the skyline there. Yeah. I really dug that. <laughs> awesome. Um, so we talked about it a little bit already, actually, but I definitely want to ask about one of the biggest challenges of any magazine is financing the bloody thing. And you mentioned Julian's doing out of pocket thus far. And now sales are being you know put back into the magazine. I guess I guess Julian's been taking care of it as the answer thus far. But what do you, what do you see as your challenges and your goals in terms of trying to make this a self sustaining venture going forward? Well, I think the 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 problem that not even the problem that we're facing, but the the solution that we want to find is to expand our audience and get some more people invested in in reading sword and sorcery. So to that end, I think we're we're trying to increase our social media outreach a little bit. We've also been contemplating doing like a Kickstarter or a Patreon perhaps implementing some kind of subscription service so people can, you know, pay for subscription and get the, you know, issues delivered to them either via mail or via, um, uh, you know, digital delivery. Mm. So I think that's, I think increasing our, increasing our sales and perhaps doing some sort of crowd, crowdfunding in the future would be our um, kind of biggest areas for, for improving the, the financial situation of the magazine. For the sustainability. Yeah, the sustainability. Mm -hmm. we, what we want is, Obviously, Julian's paying for most of out-of-pocket currently, but that's it's that's unsustainable for the long run. And we want to have a a long-term venue for sword and sor for sword and sorcery authors to be able to send their stories and have one that's kind of is able to pay that that pro rate for for a longer period of time than just you know a year or two years, however long a lot of magazines end up end up, end up lasting. Awesome. How, related to that, how do you feel about? Um 
And this may sound a bit goofy, but it seems to be contentious with some people. How do you feel about the editorial staff of a magazine like this paying themselves for the time they spend putting out the magazine? Well, I think I think it's I think it's I think it's entirely fine for an editorial staff to pay themselves. I think that that should be the goal. Well, it, it doesn't have to be the goal, but I think that if the editorial staff want to, then they should. I think people should be paid for their labor. I think, Caitlin, you agree, right? Yeah. Yeah. We don't pay ourselves because we, we don't have enough budget for that yet. But hopefully one day we can. Um, but I have, but yeah, I don't think we have any problem with, with if you can, if you make enough profit to, to pay yourselves, and of course you should. Yes. Yeah. See, I, I thought you'd say that, but I think it's good just to get on the record because it's been interesting. You know, I've been uh, trying to launch my own venture here and I have encountered some resistance with people saying, oh, you're just trying to do a cash grab. I'm like, yeah, with independent publishing. <laughs> Like, that's the way to get rich. But it is strange. People get funny ideas about how much money uh, is earned doing this kind of thing. And then they seem to think that, you know, the editorial staff should do it as like an act of charity. And yet, and, and sometimes that's even the editorial staff themselves feel that way. And I mean, if you want to do it for free and you can afford to do it, and that's fine, then sure. But if you're trying to make a real go of it, and particularly, I think, if you want to pay creators well, which is obviously something you value, you need to be able to pay yourselves because otherwise, when you're having to work, you know, one or two day jobs to keep uh, food in your belly and so on, and on top of that, do the magazine that you're not getting personally any funds for, eventually life is going to throw a big curveball at you, whether it's a medical emergency or something less dire. And what's the first thing to go every time there's an emergency, right? The stuff you do that earns you no money. <laughs> so I, I think it's just wise to eventually, you know, pay yourself a fair rate as long as you're paying the you know, the contributors as well, of course, because that means it's more likely you can keep doing the magazine and you can keep paying more creators. So it comes around back to them anyway. <laughs> like, but, uh, but yeah, I guess you're always going to get some bad opinions on the internet of all places. Who could imagine it? Uh, <laughs> okay. So what have you found most challenging so far? I know you're only a couple of issues in and now you're working on three here, but nonetheless, like, uh, what has been the most, uh, it, you know, it's a bit, not bad, but just challenging, an interesting thing to get to grips with, uh, for each of you. Uh, Caitlin, if you could tell me first. Sure. Um, I think kind of jumping off of the, the last question that you asked, I think um, like balancing the, the day jobs and, you know, all the other activities that I would like to be able to fit in and, and participate in, as well as making sure that I'm dedicating the time that the magazine needs um, as well. So I think just finding a way to balance all of those um, kind of ventures and avenues and activities um, has been a bigger, it's been a big challenge for me. Well, also, again, finding that time to just like relax and make sure that you're not, you know, going so from activity to activity, thing to thing to thing that you don't have the time to really kind of take care of yourself and make sure that you're also getting some time, some downtime um, as well. Yeah, that's a challenge for me. I, I find occasionally I have to remember to play The Sims with myself and be like, oh, uh, Oliver needs food. Yeah, <laughs> I can just be going from task, you say task, task, task. How about you, Graham? I find probably writing rejections to be the toughest part. I work as an editor and uh, a, like a freelance copy editor and developmental editor in my, in my, as my day job. And so I'm used to giving feedback to authors, but it's, it's more personal. Obviously, I, I don't know if you, if you've ever done any of that work, but it's much more personal when you are working with somebody who's like an explicit client. I feel and there's more of that expectation of, you know, I'm going to give you some advice. You're going to receive some of that advice. You're going to, you know, we have a dialogue about it, but with the yeah. editorial stuff, it, and I'm only, you know, I'm only one issue in doing it. It feels, I feel like I'm being mean to people, even, even though I, I try not to give them, we're trying to write personalized rejections to every uh, submission that we get, that we reject. And the way we do it, we kind of have a rubric because we try to say one thing that we liked about the story. And then one thing that didn't work as well for us, kind of the reason that, that perhaps it didn't, that we ultimately had to reject it. And so that part is just emotionally taxing for me. <laughs> 
I think that's a pretty good rubric, though. Yeah, one at least one good thing, one you know, one thing that didn't work for you, kind of, because it's important to know both. I think. I mean, I mean, you 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 do the other side of it, right? As well, I'm sure that infuses your approach to the emails. As uh, the rejections I've appreciated the most myself have definitely been ones with some useful feedback. If they just sort of say, "Yeah, didn't work for me," like, well, I, how do you? What do you do with that? <laughs> right. But, uh, but yeah, no, I think that's a pretty good approach and I'm sure you'll get, you know, more comfortable with it at the time. I, I have been a coward and avoided having to do that entirely, uh, by directly commissioning all the authors in my magazine so far. <laughs> so yeah, no, good on you for being brave enough to tackle the slash pile. Uh, if I'm lucky and the, you know, my thing goes further, I do want to do open subs eventually. But when people have asked me like, why are you just commissioning? Honestly, the main reason is just cowardice. <laughs> I, uh, I I don't know if I could tackle that many emails. How many how many subs have you gotten so far for issue three? Um, I'm not sure. I'd have to check. I think it's close. It might be a little bit under or over 200 at this point. Wow. <laughs> and, and I know that's nothing compared to, say, some of the big, well-established fellows who get like a thousand submissions or whatever. But, you know, even just 200 just makes my eyes boil. <laughs> Speaking of other magazines and not mine, shut up, Oliver, which... Uh, Literary magazines do you to read and enjoy? Uh, Caitlin, if you could tell me first. Sure. I would say that the one of the ones that I think I have the most familiar familiarity with is probably Beneath Ceaseless, Ceaseless Skies. Um, I would say that's probably, um, probably the again, the one that I have the most familiarity with, the one that I'm um, able to uh, read the most. Um, oftentimes, I will admit that a lot of my reading energy tends to go into um, reading things that are related to my uh, day job as a, a therapist. So I end up uh, reading a lot of like articles and research and books um, that are related to that topic. And I think that can end up taking up a lot of my uh, reading time and reading energy as well. Fair enough. How about you, Graham? I also read Beneath Ceaseless Skies quite often and uh, Tales from the Magician's Skull. I think I j we just got issue nine last week, I think. If there was a aspirational goal for the magazine, I think Jewel and I both agree that, that something like Tales from the Magician's Skull is kind of, is kind of the, the high watermark for us. That would, Having something that looks that good and has, and has that quality of stories from authors like James Ang and Dario Kioge and, um, oh God, uh, Howard Andrew Jones. <laughs> Yeah, I hear you. I'm right, I'm right there with you. Uh, Tales from the Magician Skull has been kind of my, my North Star <laughs> trend and it's a main inspiration. Yeah. What uh, do you generally like to see in a literary magazine? I mean, obviously good stories and good art, but is there anything sort of more specific that you always kind of look for when you're trying to be like, is this for me? You know, I think so. Ultimately, everything has to go through Julian. But I think that what we're looking for in general are characters that we can really identify with. And this doesn't mean characters that we like, but characters that you can just get inside the head of and, and really like dwell there. And some solid weirdness. So whether it be in the setting and the characters themselves, in some part of the story itself, something that is strange and spectacular and fantastic. Hmm. That's a like elements of melancholy and tragedy. I think uh, have have also been a, a big appeal. I can see that. Yeah, I definitely feel like I encountered, particularly in uh, John Olfort's story in issue two, a bit of what some people I think call the the northern thing. Yeah, <laughs> which I totally dig. But yeah, I can I can see uh, what you're describing there playing out just in the issues we've read so far. Uh, I forgot to ask earlier. Gosh, I'm in a real manic phase preparing for my Kickstarter. I mentioned challenges that you've encountered. What has given you the most pleasure? thus far in assembling the magazine. Uh, Graham, you can start. Man, maybe seeing the seeing the first issue come together from the outside perspective was really cool because I didn't have much involvement in it. And it was really nice just seeing that because I, I had a story in it, so I, I wasn't that much involved in, in that first issue. Um, but Julian wanted to, you know, he wanted to have one of my stories in there. 
So that was kind of really cool. And then for the first issue, for this, for this current issue, rather, I think getting to be involved in the process a little bit more and, and seeing some of the stories that other people have sent in has been really cool. I, I've seen some really incredible stories just in the slush pile. And it's just, it's interesting seeing, you know, authors who are unpublished, you know, hitherto unpublished, sending in just some amazing stuff. And I know we won't be able, we don't have the budget to buy all of it, which is always disappointing. But it is, it is really cool seeing all the, just all the great authors who are out there writing stuff and sending it in. How about you, Caitlin? Well, I would say like getting to make artwork for, for the cover of an issue is really cool. That's um, definitely been a new and interesting experience for me. It's not something that I've ever, um, you know, done before. Um, so I think that was really cool. I think it's um, cool to be able to participate more moving forward in, again, kind of like looking to see and find other artists out there. Um, and again, giving them, I think, similar to how um, Graham has talked about his conversations with Julian about how um, challenging it can be for authors to get published. I think it's also challenging in, in the visual, visual arts realm to find spaces and places to kind of display your work and, and um, kind of get that artwork out there. Um, and so I think the opportunity to be able to support other people in kind of that avenue of creativity and, um, you know, giving them a space and a place to maybe show off their artwork and show off their hard work um, is, is really cool. No, I hear you. It's, it is really nice when you yourself have created, uh, you know, writing art, any kind of art, and you can actually try and treat other authors and artists the way you would like to be treated. <laughs> it's a pretty good feeling. I, actually, I wasn't going to ask about this because I didn't know you did the cover, but uh, what is your artistic background? Because like, this thing's pretty tight. This is not amateur art on the cover here. I actually, uh, my undergrad uh, background is in art education. Um, and okay. so that's what I would say I got a, most of my more advanced kind of studio experience trying to, I, I think I really tried to aim to get a lot of understanding of a lot of different materials. Cause again, um, thinking about going into either education or, you know, where I've ended up as a therapist, um, an art therapist specifically, I think having that knowledge of a wide variety of, of art materials, even if it's not, um, you know, to quite a, a like truly professional, like really, um, uh, where you put a lot of time and energy and effort into working with like a particular material is um, is great for both of those. Um, but then I also did kind of pick an area to really, again, focus a lot of that time and energy and really try to specialize in. Um, mm. it, that is actually uh, oil painting is probably what I've spent the most time um, working on. So this is a little bit outside of, um, I would say, the realm of my usual materials that I, uh, that I work with because it's uh, pen and ink. Um, mm -hmm for that first cover. Um, so it was, but it was interesting to get to like make art that's maybe a little bit different than what I've made historically and what I tend to do. Awesome. Do you generally like to challenge yourself, I guess? I mean, I guess we all do to some degree, but you know what I mean? Like, it was, do you see yourself being like, oh, maybe if I try to woodcut next, like, is that where your mind's going or do you like to sort of stick more to the oil? Uh, no, I, I think, um, and I think this is something that I encounter in my day job as well, is I do really like like trying new things and, and even outside of like art making itself, finding those opportunities to like learn something new, try something new, be creative is really fun and, and really enjoyable for me. And I think is part of that, what kind of interests me and keeps me going and keeps me excited about something uh, is getting to try these new things and kind of experiment a little bit. I'm definitely interested in 
you know, if I have the opportunity to do any future covers, being able to try and see if I can take it in some different directions or try some different techniques. Cool. You know, it occurs to me, I've been surprised uh, with my own venture in how a lot of skills that you wouldn't expect from someone end up coming in handy. Like I've really lucked into a, a wonderful copy editor, Jordan Douglas Smith, who also has a lot of legal knowledge that's come in handy that I didn't bank on that. I'm thinking about you and your day job there. Do you, maybe you'd be good for writing rejections with the, the language of therapy to sort of ease it through or something. I don't know. <laughs> have either of you found uh, skills in yourselves or in Julian that you wouldn't have expected to be useful in the magazine that have come in handy? Well, Julian's day job, he's had a lot of day jobs, but his current one, he's a, he's a salesman and he's, he's quite good at it. And so I think that his ability to figure out how to sell things, I guess that sounds generic, but his ability to sell things, I think, is, is, has helped because he, he, he has a lot of good ideas, I think, for where to start kind of generating revenue with the magazine and where to take it. And I think also maybe perhaps the attitude of being competitive in that sense, because his job is competitive. I think has also helped us kind of keep the magazine a little bit on track in terms of, of how we want to work with it and not get discouraged necessarily when things don't, you know, when it doesn't blow up immediately. Because I, I think you always hope that something will, will you know, there, even if you know it's unrealistic, perhaps you always have the hope that in the back of your mind that something will, you know, it'll just go viral and everybody will love it and everybody will praise yeah. it. <laughs> you know, you'll become an instant success. And of course, things don't go that way. But having that, that kind of mental resilience, um, in kind of like your friend and your and your and your partner, and I think all three of us have it to some extent. is is really good. It's really great, especially for this industry or the creative industry in general, because it can be really tough to to you know persist when a lot when it's you're getting rejection after rejection, and you have a lot of people who you know they people who don't have any interest in seeing you succeed. Not maybe not even out of malice, just out of there's just so many you know there's so many people that have their own projects that their mm -hmm. own things that it can be hard to to get the attention of others. Yeah, and I mean, to a degree, I'm not too serious about this, but I would almost take malice over indifference because at least they're invested. <laughs> you know, like... Building off of Graham's answer, I think that mm -hmm. in particular, I, I think he's the kind of person where, like if he doesn't have knowledge in a certain area and it's something that's coming up that's relevant to the magazine, like he, he will go and, and do so much research in order to get that knowledge mm -hmm. um, to better understand that particular area. Um, and so I think that's something that's also just that kind of like self-starter, go-getter kind of attitude of like, if I don't know about this, I'm going to go learn about it to, in order to kind of help the magazine be successful. I, I think is something about Julian that, um, I really admire. Yeah, no, it's a shame you couldn't make it, but it, as you said, his day job's kind of wacky and all over the show, right? So for scheduling purposes, I guess. But the salesmanship, I mean, that, that just brings us back around to what I want to talk a bit more about with you guys. What uh, ideas are you exploring? What have you found kind of maybe not so productive uh, thus far for promotion? We are very ignorant about how, to about how to promote the magazine. So right now, we're just trying to figure out the best ways to do that. So we've been looking into increasing our social media presence and... I'm not terribly sure how much that has helped. I don't think it's hurt. I don't think it's hurt. Right now, both of our Instagram and our Twitter aren't necessarily, we don't have that many followers, but I think there's obviously a correlation between the magazines that sell more copies and are, and are more professional and having, I think, larger social media followings. I think that, the, I think the, that necessarily not like the largest, but it is, but it is there. So I think growing our social media might be, one thing that we need to improve but in terms of what else we've done 
I think it's we're kind of at the, the beginning stage of yeah. a lot of different ideas where we're kind of still in that almost brainstorming phase of, of trying to figure out, um, you know, with kind of the funding that we have currently available to us, what's going to make the most sense and, and what's going to, you know, be the most helpful. And so I think we're, we're really still in, again, in that kind of like idea generation brainstorming phase for a lot of it um, and haven't really necessarily picked more specifically, like which direction um, we're going to be going in. Yeah, I think what we're trying to do for is like a it's like a model for, to to work off of. Mm. So like somebody who has we 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 don't want to try to reinvent the wheel. So if there's somebody who has been in like a similar there and there have been magazines you know that have started up and they started paying, paying pro rates and et cetera et cetera and they've grown and stuff like that. You know, Clark's World started out I think in like 2006. Beneath the Skies I think was shortly thereafter or shortly before that something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so they've. They're, they're both, they're, they're not something like Asimov's or, you know, the magazine and fantasy and science fiction, which have been, which have been around forever uh, in one in one form or, or another. They've started up within the last 20 or so years and they've been able to persist. So clearly there are, there are models that work. We just need to figure out what they are, I think. Well, just as people who follow things that you like online, like what is what has worked on you? You know what I mean? I think is a good place to start. Like, what do you like when you follow someone on Twitter? Like, I personally have found it it's easy to say what's well, a turnoff, right? Like when you follow someone because you like the thing they make and they just kind of rant about politics every, every third tweet. Uh, so we've all been there. But what uh, what have you enjoyed? Like who's who's your favorite person to follow online for any reason, whether they do a magazine or anything else? Like I don't know. I like, uh, and I'm going to butcher his name, and I apologize in advance in case he listens to this. Um, the artist, he did uh, Chase Fulmer's art for Frolic on the Emerinthine, uh, Goran, I think it's Gligovich, but I... Could be wrong. That sounds right to me. A guy who is not Eastern European at all. Yeah. <laughs> so he's a, that guy. He's an amazing artist, and his Twitter, at least, I don't know if he, I'm sure he has an Instagram. I don't know if we follow him, but his Twitter is entertaining. He posts jokes and he posts pictures of his art, and pictures of other artists' art, and I like that. I like seeing. I think I, I think maybe seeing art is is one of my the, the things I like the most. How about you, Caitlin? Let's see. I'm trying to think about like uh, what my kind of social media feed tends to consist of and things like that. Um, there's dogs. Yes, videos <laughs> of dogs. Um, and then I would also say videos that I think pop up. I, I keep end up uh, ending up talking about kind of what I do as as part of my day job. But I think I, I see a lot of like therapy related kind of videos and memes and stuff like that. Speaking about like. What is what it's like to be a therapist and i think some of those like where you can kind of maybe poke a little fun or or just kind of have some or kind of be lighthearted about a, a field that i think can be challenging in a lot of ways i think that that's very fun and i know i've got a lot of uh, friends from grad school so we tend to end up kind of exchanging <laughs> videos and pictures because we we can all kind of relate to them and so i think the things that feel like relatable to my own like world and experience i think tend to tend to grab me as well okay yeah no i, I must admit that's um that's gonna be an interesting one for a sword and sorcery magazine right like because we all love this genre but that feels kind of broad i myself struggle with trying to find the specificity uh that you're describing like with the you know, the therapist memes like you can really you know dig those so it's an interesting challenge maybe we can talk about it more off mic who knows uh so graham i know you write caitlin do you ever write? And do you write, uh, you know, the kind of stuff that would be in Old Moon Quarterly or something else entirely? Well, I mean, I, there's there's a level of like documentation and writing that I have to do as part of my job. But outside of that, um, I would say that writing has never really been a strong suit of mine. 
it was always kind of a challenge. Like I'm thinking even like way back to high school, English class, writing papers. Um, it was always a struggle for me to get to like whatever word count or page count was laid out by by the teacher. Um, so I, I do not write a kind of in a more creative sense. My, my spirit of interest has always uh, kind of leaned more towards those visual arts. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Graham, when did your sort of journey with creative writing starting? Was it, you know, did you pop out the womb with a pencil in your hand or what did it come in later? Probably close to that. So I'm the opposite of Caitlin. I, I have no visual artistic talent at all. Um, and no, no academic talent other than writing and reading. So I, so I, I excelled in English class throughout school. I became an English major in college. I got my MA in composition and rhetoric, which is basically just teaching English at a college level and argumentation, um, but that part's less useful. So I, I was always kind of, I was always kind of good at English class. I was always kind of good at, at writing and I loved writing. And I started writing creatively in college. I had a couple creative writing classes, like creative, non, creative nonfiction, creative poetry, creative fiction. And I really enjoyed it, but I didn't think that it could ever really go anywhere. I didn't, I, I just didn't, I just didn't think of it as, I guess I internalized all that talk people tell you about like, you know, don't try and get it. Don't try and get a career in the arts. Don't try and be, don't, don't try and be a creative professionally. And so mm. I just kind of nipped it in the bud before I even tried attempting that. Um, until I was working as I was working at a, a, a desk job in, in like, in like an office and I was reading uh, these magazines, you know, like Nisi of Skies and Fantasy and Science Fiction. Um, and I just couldn't find like the kind of story that I wanted to, to read. And there was like a particular, you know, I, I, there, there was, I found a lot of stories I did like to read, but not, but there was a particular kind of like feeling or an atmosphere that I just couldn't feel like I could find. And I was like, man, I don't know what to do. I want to read this kind of story, but it's not out there, at least not yet. And then I was like, eventually one time the light clicked, clicked out in my head and I was like, okay, I guess I'll just write it myself. And so I just started <laughs> and seeing if, and seeing how it, and seeing how it went. And it was very fun. I had a lot of, I, I still have a lot of fun writing and I had a lot of fun writing my first stories as well. And I think it was that fun aspect that kept me writing. Even when the first ones, you know, they, they weren't published for a reason. <laughs> yeah. We've all got a drawer full of those stories, right? Yeah. The ones where you're figuring it out still, I mean, we're always, we never stop figuring it out, but certainly the earliest figuring out. Yeah. How did your, just, you know, getting to uh, creative writing coincide or line up with you getting into like sword and sorcery, weird fiction and stuff? Was it around the same time or were you reading it long before you wrote it? Oh, I was, I was reading it long before I wrote it. So I was, I think I got introduced to Robert E. Howard. I think that probably like the first sword and sorcery stuff I read was, would be Robert E. Howard when I was uh, a teenager, probably in high school. Um, but before that, I mean, I was reading fantasy fictions basically since I could read. I think the first thing I ever read on my own was, and this will sound funny, but it was probably like the, the fifth edition Bretonian army book for Warhammer Fantasy. My, I have an older brother, he's 10 years older than me, and he had mountains, perhaps literal mountains at this point, of RPG source books and like Warhammer books and all that sort of thing. And so I was, you know, younger than I wanted to read all the stuff. And so I remember it had, I can still remember the cover was what attracted me to it. And that still happens. I still judge books based on their cover and buy them based on all the time. Um, which I recommend people do. <laughs> yeah, people say don't do it, but it's like, what's the point of the cover then? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, you don't judge the content, but maybe like, it's okay to base your purchasing decisions, I think. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm preaching to myself. <laughs> 
think at this point, trying to convince myself it's a good practice. But it had this it had this really awesome, very colorful picture of like this, you know, medieval knight with this big like red dragon on his helmet, and you know that he's like charging like at you with all these other knights behind him. And I think there's like maybe like a dead orc or something like in front of him. It just looked really cool. It's exactly what like a five year old or however however old I was. It's exactly what I wanted to see and read. And so I started reading that, and then I transitioned from reading uh, old British war game source books into novels. So I think I started reading like Brian Jake's um, his Redwall series. That was that, I think when I was a little kid, I loved that. And then I went straight from that to George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones stuff, which was a jump. It's a transition. And then when I was a teenager, I started I, I started reading uh, Robert E. Howard, Clark Ashton Smith, H. P. Lovecraft. And I liked the weirdness. I liked the cosmic horror aspect. I liked the individual, the focus on individual characters and the kind of the smaller stakes. And I think that's what attracted me as keep me interested in sword and sorcery, you know, uh, about a decade later. Awesome. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed talking with you both. I'm very excited for Old Moon Quarterly's future. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us about, you know, it sounds like, you, as you say, Caitlin, you guys are in a lot of, sort of early brainstorming stages now. So maybe it's premature for me to ask, but I mean, you know, any particular big hopes and dreams? Do you want to have the magazine eventually get to a place where you're maybe publishing multiple titles or get into publishing books? Uh, what are your sort of, you know, blue sky thoughts about where this thing could go? Sure. I think um, what we discussed is I hope one day we can publish longer works. And I know, I, I, and when I say I, I mean, I know Julian, it was Julian was had, had that idea originally. It was the idea to maybe publish more novellas, possibly, or when I say more novellas, publish them in the first place. Uh, publish novellas, possibly publish novels, um, and make the magazine longer, you know, increase just the production values on it, you know, get more interior illustrations like Caitlin was talking about. Um, yeah, I think, I think, you know, have a, you know, do some crowdfunding and, and see if we can, you know, establish a Patreon or a Kickstarter and see if we can get some funding like that so we can pay authors even more because I know like Clark's World pays 12 cents a word. I think that would be really awesome yeah. we can have more venues that pay even above kind of the the base like eight cents a word that would be incredible and so i think maybe that that would be a real like kind of pie in the sky be able to pay that consistently maybe be able to release more often if we go from quarterly to you know monthly or, or something like that that would be really awesome too cool all right well if people want to check out old moon quarterly where can they find you we currently we have we're only on Amazon for our ebooks because we very foolishly have signed up for Kindle Unlimited, which pays very little. I think it's paid us in, in case anybody else is wondering they want to start a magazine. Hmm. Kindle Unlimited does not, at least for a magazine of our length, does not pay very much. I think it's been about six dollars a month at most, which is about maybe two or three sales of based on royalties of like the fiscal and the digital copies. So right now the digital copies only on Amazon as is the print on demand, but because we've had some demand for people who don't want to give Amazon money, which we totally understand, we are going to hopefully have a print version at least that will be elsewhere. And then once we are no longer locked into Kindle Unlimited, cause they make you sign up for, I think like 60 days or 90 days at a time, mm -hmm. um, that current period ends, then the ebook will also be elsewhere. We're also going to start doing, and this will, this will be up later today, we're going to have a free story from each issue, so for the past two issues, uh, up on our website. So we'll have one free story from issue one and one free story from issue two up on the website. So if people want to get a taste of the magazine before they commit to buying it, they can check those out. 
Um, do you want to talk about our uh, what the website is and our social medias as well? Oh so yes, yes. So if people want to, if people want to <laughs> find us on, on online, they can find us at uh, oldenpublishing.com, which is our website, and they can find us on Twitter at uh, Oldman Publish and on Instagram at. I believe it's Old Moon Publishing as well, but I think right. they can also search Old Moon Quarterly and it should come up. Excellent. That too. Right on. I'll put all those links in the description as well to make it as easy as possible. And we're on Mastodon as well at, oh, I think it's just at Old Moon. I think we're at the Wandering Shop. I think it's the instance we're in. Oh, yeah. Actually, sorry. I was just about to wrap up and then I was like, wait, I want to ask about uh, Caitlin. I guess uh, that's you, right? On uh, the socials. How are you finding adjusting to Mastodon? Because I'm not dumb and I'm able to learn new things, especially new technical things, but I find it, I'm, I'm one of those people who's struggling with it. How, how are you finding like their whole thing of different instances and all that stuff? Um, so actually I'm, I'm mostly focused on the Instagram. Graham's been doing more with the Twitter and the, what's the other one called? Mastodon. Mastodon stuff. So I'll, I'll let him take. Yeah. Uh, okay. Pardon me. Uh, Graham. Oh, it's okay. No, it's fine. Uh, Mastodon, we don't use as much because it just doesn't seem to get as much traction um, or as, as much outreach. When we first got invited to it, there's a lot of people um, following us and it was really exciting and seeing people were using it a lot because I think there was a lot of anxiety about Twitter uh, basically destroying itself. And I think yep. as that anxiety disappeared, I think the impetus for people to really use Mastodon has also disappeared a little bit with it. And so we are not finding Mastodon as useful as Twitter currently, but if that changes, then we're totally open to it because we, I know we have, I at least don't have any attachment really to any of the social media websites. Um, I just, we just know that you, know, you need to have, you, you, they're useful tools. So currently we haven't been using, it's, it, it is much less intuitive, I would say than Twitter um, in terms of, of getting outreach to people and, and in terms of understanding kind of the instance sort of thing. Cause I don't, I, I get that there are different, like they are, connected like pools of people who are kind of subscribed to the same sort of server. It's almost like different boards on a message board, but yeah. they can't really talk to each other um, instantly. I don't know. Again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the best social media person. So perhaps I'm misusing Mastodon and it's, and it's a way better resource than I think it is, which is completely possible. <laughs> but we haven't gotten that much use out of it. Have, have you? I don't know. I, I, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I, again, I'm, I'm lucky. I just was like, Kevin, can you? I, I can't handle it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, basically, we, we um, you know, a new external source, we, Kevin has been cross-posting. I think he set it up so that every time we tweet, it just goes bloop and appears on the Wandering Shop instance, which seems to be the hot hub for SFF uh, on Mastodon. And I have tried to, like, I've got an account. I sort of poked around a little bit. And I just, I don't know, it's, I just can't quite grok it. I, might, I personally have not re even really browsed it much yet. So, yeah, that's why I thought I'd ask you and see what your experiences were. But, yeah, so far, it's, uh, like I said, I've been lazy and been like, Kevin, please take care of it. <laughs> I, I've got other things to do. I'm so important as the editor. No, I'm not. Anyway. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm really, again, really happy to have you guys on here. And I wish you all the best of luck with future issues of Old Moon Quarterly. Thank you very much. Thank you. And, and good luck with uh, the new Edge of Sword and Sorcery as well. I hope the Kickstarter goes really well. Thank you. Yeah, this is going to go up either just before the Kickstarter or during during it so who knows what mental state i'll be in by the time you listener are hearing this uh but yeah <laughs> fingers crossed <laughs> all right so i'm writing a novel features original intro and outro music by gloria guns and it's hosted by yours truly oliver brackenbury if you'd like to submit a question then please email it to so i'm writing a novel at gmail.com 
You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing. That's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, or checking out any of the other ways you can support the show by heading to soimwritinganovel.com slash support the show, which has things like links to our Patreon, Coffee, and PayPal. Thanks for hanging out with me, and Graham and Caitlin, and I'll see you soon.